so welcome everybody. The Community Change Collaborative examines methods, frameworks, and forces shaping community development, uh, approaches to community engagement, and how to build a sustainable cross-sectoral partnerships. Our interdisciplinary research interests range from the local to the international, applying a variety of qualitative and mixed method approaches to connect theory and practice for the benefit of our graduate student and faculty members, community partners, practitioners, and research researchers interested in community change. We meet as uh, we meet weekly as a group uh, to explore theories and methods critically, which often leads to lively educational discussions that inform our professional and personal development. CCC faculty forums are open to all students, faculty, and community members. The forums provide a venue about uh, community change work in Virginia Tech, or of Virginia Tech faculty, and to engage in discussion about this work. Graduate students from any discipline uh, interested in community change are welcome to join our CCC meetings. Please email me. I'm going to drop my email in the chat link here. Uh, please email me and I can add you to the listserv to receive meeting announcements. Um, today's forum features the work of Dr. Liddell Winling. Dr. Uh, Liddell Winling is an associate professor of history and a core member of the public history program at Virginia Tech. His research and teaching uh, explore urban and political history in the United States, especially how space, architecture, and geography shape politics, economic life, and daily experience. His book, Building the Ivory Tower, examined the role of American universities as universities as real estate developers in the 20th century. Professor Willing uses spatial data tools in both his print and digital work over the web. With collaborators in 2016, he launched Mapping Inequality, Redlining the New Deal America, on the work of homeowners loan corporation to map and grade the credit worthiness of neighborhoods and cities across America. In 2018, he launched electing the House of Representatives uh, 1840 to 2016 on congression, congressional elections. This work has been featured in the Atlantic, the New York Times, uh, on national public radio and uh, other media outlets. And without a further ado, I'm going to pass this off to Dr. Winling. Great, thank you for having me. And, um... You know, it's great to kind of, uh, you know, present to or get some feedback and have some discussion from a from both a university, you know, kind of institution, and then also one that, you know, I think with uh, that outside the discipline of history is interested in kind of community engagement and that that kind of community change um, collaborative framework is. Um, useful and it's kind of a, an emerging, a narrow but emerging priority um, within um, history departments, basically community engaged history um, and the opportunity for community partnership and um, advocacy. And, you know, in mapping inequality, we have found, you know, a particular model for how to give resources to make history relevant and understandable, as well as kind of like um, customizable or locally relevant um, to allow kind of local people to tap into um, kind of national patterns 
of inequality, um, public policy, and um, like racial segregation. And so we'll just talk a little bit about both the program, the historical program that we study, um, as well as our project and illustrate some parts of it, and then what some of the kind of community engagement opportunities and consequences have been. Um, so first, I mean, we've probably heard recently the um, increasingly popular, increasingly prominent um, set of references, journalistic coverage, um, and now policy moves on redlining, right? Which is kind of the first in the era that we're uh, that we study in the 1930s and 1940s was the kind of federally defined set of programs for mortgage insurance and home finance that um, intentionally or explicitly um, denied loans for um, home finance to uh, people of color and um, neighborhoods with immigrants, um, as well as like other minority groups, especially African-Americans, but not only. Okay. And this came about, um, this era of federal redlining came about as the result of a kind of public-private partnership that emerged in the late 1920s and that was really accelerated and operationalized, put into, um, put into force and implemented as a result of the Great Depression. Basically, in the 1920s, um, there were a set of economists and real estate leaders um, largely based in Chicago that worked together to both create the field of real estate and land economics um, among academics, um, delineated the theories and asked the question and also answered it like, what is the basis of land value? And is it a, we'll say scientifically or rigorously knowable, um, knowable like kind of value? Um, and they answered that uh, with a series of, uh, um, you know, kind of mechanisms that were embedded in um, private practice because they partnered with um, the National Association of Real Estate Boards, kind of the leading real estate professionals in the country, um, where it was based in Chicago, but had um, chapters all, all around the country. And so this kind of collaboration, this kind of like academic research and outreach happened in the 1920s. And then in the 1930s, when um, the kind of Great Depression hit, um, up to about half of all mortgages in the country were in default. And so first the Hoover administration and then the Roosevelt administration, uh, like since the crisis and the, ho the home finance crisis, was one of the kind of mix of crises of the, of the Great Depression. And um, the Hoover administration, the Roosevelt administration, like grappled for answers or solutions. They're like, well, who's got any ideas? And these um, academics and these um, real estate leaders in Chicago raised their hands and said, like, we do. We've been talking about this for a decade. And so um, the Hoover administration and then um, Roosevelt created agencies, the Federal Home Loan Bank and Federal Home Loan Bank Board, 
and then the Homeowners Loan Corporation, and then the Federal Housing Administration um, to basically hire these private actors um, to implement their kind of private, um, their, their private ideals and recommendations as public policy. And then, um, especially the Roosevelt administration, put the power um, and the resources of the federal government behind it. And so um, the Homeowners Loan Corporation um, refinanced, directly refinanced um, an estimated one fifth of all mortgages in the country, um, non-farm mortgages, ones that are not, not, you know, not on farms, not in rural areas, but not urban, suburban, kind of like um, metropolitan areas. Um, for a, a total of about 1 million mortgages. And they also created a long-term um, a long-term mortgage. Basically up until that point, the um, typical mortgage had been three, five, maybe seven years and had been like a, um, like a balloon payment where you did not have to pay down the principal. And at the end of the term, we'll say five years, maybe you could get another one, get another mortgage to pay off the first one and then kind of pay as you, as you went, something along these lines. But that left home, that left borrowers um, very susceptible to economic crises like the depression. So a long-term fully amortized 15 year and then 25 year, and then that led to 30 year mortgage um, came to dominate. And at the moment when the federal government was the only lender in the country, um, it became, uh, it, it was able to kind of change the rules of the game for home finance. So the Homeowners Loan Corporation was meant to um, address the immediate crisis of the Great Depression. And then the Federal Housing Administration was meant to restructure the home finance and home building sector for the rest of the 20th century to kind of make sure that this kind of um, crisis of the Great Depression never happened again. So Homeowners Loan Corporation and the Federal Housing Administration worked together. So with first the federal government on, on the hook for a million mortgages, you know, billions of dollars of, um, of, of debt, um, they kind of wondered like what, um, where are good investments? Where is, where is it safe to invest in mortgages? Where is it not safe to invest in mortgages? And how can we teach banks and savings and loans and mortgage, and mortgage companies how to recognize this and make good investments in the future? Um, at the time, there was no, um, there, there were local kind of real estate property knowledge bases, but there was no national um, clearinghouse, no national way to share information. And so basically what the um, federal housing, uh, First Hulk and FHA did was they surveyed um, these appraisers and these lenders and these real estate developers and brokers um, in all of these cities, any city with about 40,000 um, 40, residents or above. And um, they said, like, where are the identifiable neighborhoods? And where's, where are they stable? Where do the wealthy people live? Where do the poor people live? And where are um, 
where are the changing neighborhoods? And so um, the result was called the city survey from the Homeowners Loan Corporation, something similar from the Federal Housing Administration. And um, what this did was basically um, took these ideas from local, local real estate leaders um, as they had been kind of shaped and educated by um, these academics and by these national real estate leaders. And it kind of institutionalized these biases on the local level. And then, like I said, was kind of, were kind of turned into public policy. So as an example, um, let's see, June, if you can click on Chicago, I can show you an example of one of these maps. Um, and a large city like Chicago, um, which I study and know well, um, it takes really like five maps to encompass the whole um, metropolitan area. Um, and if you can zoom in on, let's say the, um, the top of the two, yeah, exactly that one, uh, not, the, not the very top, but the second to the top. This is the north side of Chicago. And this is now largely, and you can just kind of zoom in or double click, um, or you can use the plus in the upper, um, in the upper right. Um, and you can see um, this, this map I'll say was, um, I digitized these, uh, had gone to the National Archives um, number two repository in College Park, Maryland, and had digitized this and put it up on the web. And these maps were used in a, um, uh, uh, an Atlantic cover article by ta Coates called The Case for Reparations. Um, where he talked about contract selling, racial discrimination, and um, redlining. And um, you can see, like, basically, these, this is the city of Chicago and really kind of Cook County separated out neighborhood by neighborhood by neighborhood. And um, they're divided into four grades or four types of neighborhoods, um, which are graded and color-coded, with green being the best, um, blue being still desirable. Maybe it's built out, maybe it's not quite the newest neighborhood. Maybe um, there are, um, there's no new development going on there, but it's still like one of the, you know, some of the most desirable neighborhoods in, in a city. Um, C is yellow, definitely declining. And this is where they say that there's demographic transformation. Maybe the housing's getting a little bit older. Um, maybe the infrastructure or the kind of amenities are no longer as like robust or as well capped or there's not the same kind of newness to the area um, as in A and B. And then um, D, the red areas are defined as hazardous. All of the things that could go wrong in a neighborhood um, like already have happened, not just declining, but it's already basically hit bottom, right? So these four kind of color-coded grades. Um, and so the, these red neighborhoods, these red areas are kind of the origin of the term redlining. Um, and let's see, it's not simply the um, kind of color coding of the neighborhood, although that's part of it. The maps, which are like quite renowned and are featured in, you know, um, you know, newspapers and um, websites and other media outlets, publications around the country on, on a pretty regular basis. Um, these are really just visual 
they serve as a visual index for the kind of survey data that um, Hulk um, asked for and then tabulated. So if you can, June, if you know where the loop is, there's kind of in the, in the central area, kind of to the lower part, there's a gray crosshatched area. And to the left of that, um, yep, up a little bit, yep, and just a little bit to the left where, where your cursor is, go up, 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 yep, and um, there's, yes, right around there and kind of the, just to the left of that gray area, some of the horizontal neighborhoods, a little bit to the right, a little bit to the east, um, let's say down, down about two to like kind of a horizontal, um, yeah, you're real, real close. Um, click on one of those, any of those red lines neighborhoods will bring up some of the um, information and the evaluation of the neighborhood. And this is basically an immigrant and then increasingly African-American neighborhood outside of the loop. This is kind of where um, University of Illinois Chicago is right now. It had been like kind of Greek town and so forth. Um, and so um, these textual comments give like extremely blunt and in many cases like illustrate the bias biased ideologies of the real estate lenders, appraisers, and so forth, right? Um, located approximately between um, Laughlin and Western, a badly blighted area declining in population. Um, it says, you know, that they're in um, poor, poor condition with old, small frame dwellings, um, with a handful of exceptions. And then um, if you scroll down on this June, it will get to a set of kind of standard questions. This is just like a long textual explanation of the housing stock and the demographics of the neighborhood. And it says, um, what's, what's the population like? 100% of the people in this neighborhood are um, immigrants, foreign, um, foreign born, and this neighborhood is Italian, right? Um, and what do they do for a living? And here it says, well, they're basically manual laborers and many of them are on like WPA um, relief, relief payrolls because this was um, in um, the second half of the 1930s, basically from 1935 to 1940. Um, and so um, in like a neighboring, uh, a neighboring area. And so June, if you go uh, maybe two up um, north of this, there's, oh yeah, that, that long, that um, horizontal red one, just below the one you're at right now. Yes, right there. Um, click there and this illustrates or it really fixes upon, right? It says one of the poorest areas around the Chicago Loop, predominantly Italian, and there's a marked infiltration of Negro from the area on the South who in turn are driving the Italians into the section on the North, right? And so what they're doing, I think is fairly um, accurately describing the um, demographic transformations of, of the city of Chicago. We're in the midst of the Great Migration. Um, we're at the conclusion, we're just after um, immigration restriction. So um, in the 1920s, we basically closed the door on international immigration, but there was a great deal of um, African-American migration from, you know, in flight from the Jim Crow South. 
And so this illustrates the kind of changing neighborhood geographies and changing racial geographies, um, in part informed by the work of like sociologists at the University of Chicago. But what it's doing is basically saying like those, um, those demographic changes are sources of risk. They basically get those biases, um, which are you know, somewhat impressionistic about how this demographic change translates into the um, housing market. Um, you know, basically what it does is it institutionalizes this bias against um, immigrants and especially African-Americans and, and says, these are the rigorous bases for home evaluation and where both private lenders and the federal government should um, like should invest, where it should guarantee mortgages and so forth. So the, um, the federal government, Hulk, um, creates a city survey and it, um, through the federal home loan bank, kind of does out outreach and oversight to building and loan companies all across the country. And if you think of like the film, It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey is, you know, he runs Bailey Brothers Building and Loan. And um, like he would have um, been a member of this national organization called the U.S. Building and Loan um, League. And that was a lobbying group that helped shape the policy of the Homeowners Loan Corporation and the Federal Home Loan Bank. So um, there was kind of a cozy relationship and cozy doesn't even go get to the root of the relationship between regulators and policymakers on the one hand and um, the lenders on the other. It was basically the private lenders populated the um, government regulatory agencies and set policy based on the interests of the private lenders. Right. And so with this relationship, with this kind of survey, institutionalizing um, kind of racial and ethnic bias in federally mandated and federally backed and restructured um, home finance policy, um, the the. Uh, um, you know, the process of redlining and their ideas really come to dominate um, throughout the um, length of the 20th century. So um, my colleagues and I kind of um, discovered this, and I won't say discovered like we had, no one had ever seen it. We found or we located, I guess I should say, um, these maps and these surveys and like this archival material, which had been somewhat known to urban historians for a while. Um, but we thought, you know, like these are so compelling that we need to know not just about the handful of studies that have been done on a place like Chicago or New York or Philadelphia. Every city in the country where there's a map is going to want to know um, about this process and about this kind of legacy. And so we digitized these um, maps geo-referenced them. I had like students do that. I taught them GIS and we did it in courses. I had research assistants do it. And we did the same um, with my colleagues at University of Richmond, um, transcribed what are called the area descriptions. That's this textual material on the left of the screen. Um, and then built a site making this available. We made it open 
um, open for everyone. It's a creative commons, um, share-alike, non-commercial attribution um, site, uh, a license for everything on the site, including our um, the GIS kind of polygon boundaries that we had drawn, you know, kind of by hand in ArcGIS. Um, so we made it available to journalists, to other scholars, to local activists, local historians, and so forth. And so um, as a result, um, there was like a great deal of interest. I mentioned Ta-Nehisi Coates, even before we really launched the site, um, the case for reparations drew upon um, these resources. I just kind of like posted these image files on my website and the doggone website crashed because it drove so much traffic to it. And, but um, we created this site and this kind of like outreach plan um, with the public and with educators in mind to kind of tell people about um, this process of redlining and make the connection to the present while also empowering other people to kind of build um, some of their own studies. Um, and so, um, you know, we, we have seen these resources kind of incorporated into and featured in, um, you know, communities, like basically every community that was mapped, and there were over 200 that were mapped, um, and that appear on the site on the kind of like national, if it's got one of those color coded um, circles on the national map, it is, um, um, it, it was mapped. And so yeah, you can hit the US icon in the upper right, June, just to the right. Oh, this one right here? Yep, exactly. And, um, you know, these are all the cities that were mapped basically that had populations of 40,000 or above. And, you know, like almost every city in the country has done some set of journalistic stories or local investigations on um, the kind of redlining in, in their own city. Um, I have Google Alerts set up for this. And so um, Ogden, Ogden, Utah, just had a pretty extensive, um, um, set of um, stories within the last week about like the kind of legacy of redlining in um, in Utah. And this is a place which actually does not have many African-Americans and certainly did not like had even fewer in the 1930s, but the same kind of um, priorities and biases existed and were operating there. And when African-Americans did move to places like Salt Lake City or Ogden, um, they, they faced this kind of um, systemic or structural discrimination uh, when they went to buy houses or get home mortgages or things of that nature. Um, and so um, our, you know, I would say one of the things that I, you know, kind of lament a bit about this project is that we have not been able to spend as much time, you know, like working in individual communities. But what we have been able to do is work with journalists, work with housing advocates, work with um, lawyers in some cases to um, give them the tools and to help contextualize for them um, what um, you know, their, their own work in these, in these cities. So in some ways, like we have not been 
um, very directly involved in kind of like community engagement in a place like Ogden or in a place like Minneapolis or um, in a place like Atlanta, but we have been kind of advising and enabling the work of people in those, in those communities. Um, so, you know, in that way, by basically creating these resources, resources and in some ways like democratizing the scholarship of people among the collaborators, as well as other urban historians, um, we've been able to bring this, um, you know, bring this discourse um, to the public. You know, we've had like maybe uh, as of maybe three months ago, we had over a million um, page views. And then the journalism has had like tens of millions of um, um, readers. And so it's like, well, basically probably half of all um, like pieces of journalism about redlining make some reference to or link to um, mapping inequality and then you know embed the maps or use screen captures or something along these lines um but one of the features like one of the found foundational um pieces has been um one of the foundations for redlining was racially restrictive covenants. And in a number of those area descriptions, um, it basically says, is this area well restricted? Or whether, what are some favorable influences? And it would say strong restrictions or racial restrictions or something along these lines. Um, and so a new project that I'm working on, which actually flows directly from mapping inequality, is working on racially restrictive covenants and researching these and excavating these in Cook County, Illinois, where Chicago is. And so June, if you can go to a, um, if you can go to um, a site up at the top, type in chicagocovenants.com. Um, it'll show that that site. Um, and actually, I'm part of I'm organizing a national coalition on um, racial racially restrictive covenants. And um, in fact, one of the reasons that I had a um, tech challenge was because um, I had been in a Zoom meeting with the um, with the National Covenant uh, Covenants Coalition, and then um, like could not kind of get out of it more or less while they were meeting right at the same time. Um, but in communities all over the country, and one of them foremost, probably the most prominent example is Minneapolis, um, where they've worked with digitized land records to find the racial restrictions in Hennepin County, where Minneapolis is. But um, if you go to um, chicagocovenants.com, um, I'll show you just a kind of uh, um, brief example of that. Uh, restrictive covenants, uh, go to the second one, actually, not the first one. Um, the, the second one's a little bit easier. Um, these were documents that were popularized by um, real estate, the same, the very same real estate um, leaders um, that basically said, if you see the number one and number two, it says the restriction that no part of said premises shall in any, um, in any fashion to be um, occupied or directly or indirectly by any Negro or Negroes, provided that this restriction shall not prevent the occupation during period of employment as janitors or chauffeurs, right? So no number two says restriction, no part of said premises shall be sold, given, conveyed, or leased to any Negro or Negroes. And this is a covenant of which there are 
probably more than a thousand, I would estimate, covering about 80% of residential Chicago in the 1940s. And so um, what we're doing is kind of crowdsourcing um, the research to find these covenants among paper indices of uh, about 5,000 um, kind of index books in Cook, the Cook County Clerk's Office, which detail about, um, I would say, uh, let's see, 5,000 and then 1,000 beyond that. So 5 million um, land transactions. And so we need um, basically members of the public to help us do this kind of like visual manual scanning um, like optical, like just looking and reading to find these covenants to see um, not just how like a national home finance framework reinforced segregation and discriminated against African-Americans, but also how individual real estate developers and individual homeowners, parcel by parcel, neighborhood by neighborhood, participated in this. Um, and so uh, we found about a hundred of these so far. We've got about mm, two dozen um, volunteers. And in fact, there was a training session in Cook County and research session today um, led by a graduate student that I'm, um, that I'm working with. Um, and so what we're, what we're trying to do is get even more local and more uh, getting the public more intensely involved with these primary source documents, because like when you read a document like this, it's basically impossible to deny how racial discrimination is, has been embedded in the real estate system and in this, the, home the practices of the home finance sector. And so um, we're working to kind of um, and go through every more or less every land transaction to find the racial, racially restrictive covenants. Um, and then, you know, like have members of the public not only find them, but also transcribe them. And then also do some of like the geo-referencing and um, creating of shapefile boundaries so that um, they can be incorporated into like a publicly oriented site. And so we're in fact working even more to get the public involved with these primary source documents and the kind of digital processing. And so this is the way in which my public and digital history practice um, works or at least hopes to um, involve the, the community in you know, some of the most important reckonings with um, racial inequality, the racial housing gap, uh, racial wealth gap, um, and um, ongoing patterns of racial segregation and unequal school financing um, that we see in the country today. And so I'll say that's probably enough right now uh, with like maybe two legacy pieces is um, you could stop sharing the screen, um, um, June, but um, Evanston, Illinois, um, I about a well, about two years ago now, approved the nation's first um, like racial reparations program um, because there was a recent legalization of marijuana in Illinois. Um, Evanston said that they were gonna take their revenue from 
licensing of marijuana dispensaries, and they would devote that to the reparations program. And because essentially um, drug busts have, you know, gone against and um, African Americans in particular have suffered from unequal application of drug laws, they, they're going to use this um, drug revenue to kind of fund a reparations movement. And they basically, um, the first phase has been um, devoted to housing reparations for if someone can demonstrate that they, their family was harmed or um, was a homeowner um, in Evanston between uh, an African-American homeowner or lived in a redlined area between like 1930 and 1968 when the um, Fair Housing Act was passed that, um, that outlawed or, or made it illegal to redline or to use racially restrictive covenants, um, then people can get grants to invest in um, like home ownership basically for down payments or rehabilitation, renovation or something along these lines to basically take that money that was extracted from African-American community and like reinvest it in um, black communities. So there've been a couple other cities that have followed suit in a variety of ways. Um, but Evanston kind of um, drew upon our site and, um, and you know, had like some conversations and consultations with us um, uh, um, as they were developing the criteria for their reparations program. Um, so, I mean, with that said, this is this is kind of my contribution as a historian to kind of community change, and I'm happy to um, hear any thoughts that you have or answer any questions you have about about this or like other kinds of affiliated projects and programs that you know of that like might be relevant to to um, that I might want to tap into or um, learn more about. So I have a question, Dale. This is just. Um... We're working in a very small community uh, in Patrick County here in Virginia, mm -hmm. a rural community. Um, and like a lot of that area of Virginia, it's seen substantial decline in population, out migration and so on. It's fascinating in terms of, of what I would guess is public history from the outside in the sense that it was once a flourishing little community and people have memories of um, what it was like to live in this community when the railroad came through and we were standing in uh, on a plat last week where we were kind of this was over here and that was there talking to folks that had lived in the community for decades. All of it is basically gone now, not all of it, but a good share of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet it seems to me profoundly important before that generation goes away for two reasons, one related to your work directly, I think. Um, that somehow we capture this. And I'm not sure that we're doing it systematically. And I don't have a sense in terms of how public historians are doing this work nationwide, how much of this is going on or how structured and systematic it might be. That's the first part of the question. And the second one is there was and is um, because of the um, original slave population, a small but important African-American population in that part of Western mm -hmm. Yeah, southwestern Virginia. And indeed, um, there's, there is historical work going on in Kentucky, I know, around that population in Appalachia and so on. But again, not enough. And we're going to lose the population before potentially we can uh, gain access to all that they, in fact, brought to these communities and experienced in them. 
Um, so I'd just be curious in terms of your perceptions of how public history is addressing that broad question. And I gave you a specific example because we happen to be working there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, I have a colleague, um, Jessica Taylor, who is an oral historian. And I think oral historians are really at the front lines of, of this type of work. You know, in some ways, you know, there's no way for them to not be like engaged with the community, right? Like um, an archive, you know, someone who works in archives, um, you know, needs not deal with any, right. they don't even need to meet the people that they're studying. Right. Maybe they right. never can because it was like 50 years ago or hundred years ago or something like this. But an oral historian, like you're meeting someone who, um, you know, like participated in the events or something along these lines. And, um, you know, I think oral history is one of the key ways that both will say like academic, academic slash public historians, but in many cases, like local historians, um, are, are, this is one of the ways in which they are um, kind of capturing and I think uh, leading a reckoning um, in communities with basically what has been lost um, the legacies of some of these battles, whether it be civil rights battles, whether it be um, issues of like deindustrialization and depopulation, whether it be something like the decline of mining and the kind of impact on you know many Appalachian communities, um, uh, because you know I think one of the things that um, this work that, that mapping inequality and the work on redlining has brought home to me is that, you know, in some ways it's like, it's never too late to, to kind of provoke a reckoning or a reflection or a reconsideration of like these historical events. You know, um, civil rights, NAACP civil rights advocates were litigating against covenants in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s. Robert Weaver, who was um, an academic and also um, eventually, um, the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development under Lyndon Johnson, he was studying this in the 1940s, and he helped pass the Fair Housing um, Fair Housing Act. But um, you know, I would say that you know, redlining in the 1980s and 1990s was um, you know a little passe. It was not a hot topic. Um, even into the like the, the 2000s, but um, you know, in many communities, we might even say nationwide, there's a much greater openness to reckoning with racial inequality, as well as the role of like housing and these other kind of structural forms. And so, um, you know, I thought like, wow, this this people just, I'm sure historians are going to want to look at these maps. You know, yeah. even if they they study Flint. And they only care about Flint. I actually kind of underplayed or underestimated how broad the interest would be. But the point is that, you know, we've played a part in, but people, I think, were ready to reflect on this history in a way that they had not been up right. until this point. And so, you know, as you say, you know, like the history of, we'll say, mining communities, that may seem like it's it's a it's a narrative that's like dead and gone and, um, you know, like um, cast into like the dustbin of history, people have decided they're, they're moving elsewhere, the economy has changed. But, you know, like those 
labor conflicts, for example, those environmental consequences, um, those economic consequences, I think are, you know, if we capture some of this history, whether through oral history or other forms of documentation, like they will, you know, we don't know when they'll be ripe for reckoning in, a vi in what may be like a very um, like present oriented policy debate, right? Like mm -hmm. the Community Reinvestment Act, which is an anti-redlining act is, is yeah. up for debate in a way that it was like had not been for right. like right. a generation. And the Biden administration passed um, um, regulations um, to basically to remedy private redlining and to send the Department of Justice after banks in a way that, for example, the Obama administration, certainly not the Bush administration um, uh, um, and the Clinton administration did not value. And so in some ways, this like the reckoning with the historical injustices and the historical conflicts, I think, have helped invigorate present day policy debates and priorities because in some ways people have been saying like fine like finally we can deal right. with these things that we would have been unable to you know like a generation ago that's the direct i think um really cool connection between what you're doing and our own work in this group is that it's an epistemic scale question and i love the way you put it how do you provoke um catalyze is the word we often talk about mm -hmm. space for both individual and communal reflection about injustice about inequity and that's continuing and i love the example because i was thinking about it throughout your presentation um, we know that it, well while it's illegal redlining of all sorts de facto has continued um, in the real estate industry in fact i was when i moved to roanoke many years ago or salem um, our realtor, more, less than gently, shall I put it, steered us to specific places in my naive yeah. saying, what about this? Oh, no, 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 you don't want to go there, um, mm -hmm. which is exactly how it is obtaining now. And I don't know quite how to do it. But the deeper point that I'm making here is it's the attitudes that underpin this. It's the assumptions, the norms and values that need to be shifted. And you don't go there unless you can provoke conversations where people begin to reflect anew afresh on their own values. And mm -hmm. so that's what's really interesting. And I think the, the maps themselves as artifacts in some sense are playing that role. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think they're, they're, they're very visually compelling. You know, I had people like librarians talk to me when I was just thinking about this project. You know, they said, you know, not everybody can is interested in reading a long textual document. You know, not all sources, you know, kind of land the same way. But she said, uh, one particular librarian, said, um, you know, I feel like everybody can look at a map and kind of understand what it's trying to tell them. And so, you know, like that stuck with me. And um, it has been the case that while the maps um, are not the most uh, kind of important or evocative, um, you know, like individual document, they, they are in some ways like the most visceral and the most um, understandable, the most legible, if you will, and um, that 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 has been an interesting kind of consideration on, like how how do you even present or value these documents when you've got a narrative and like a set of structural considerations in your mind? Like how do you get someone else to kind of understand it quickly, or even more important, just want to explore yep. themselves through through the documents, through the archive, and so forth? Yeah. 
Yeah. It's interesting. You know, the same is true for if you go out and do what we call social network analysis, sociologists, public administration people go out and try to figure out how folks are connected in communities. Um, you get the same kind of reaction where it's, it's a way that one can catalyze potential conversations about mm -hmm. who appears to be connected to whom and why. And what does that mean? You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I just wanted to chime in. <clears throat> it was a bit embarrassing thumbing around on the map because I'm actually from Chicago. And so, but uh, certainly uh, you saw that in the, this is obviously the result of it, but if you, if you see in the north side of, the, this is the north suburb of Chicago, yeah. um, where Rockford is, you saw the, the, the mapping was there. And so stuff like that is, I think, a visually, and not, not only is it historically, but it's, again, using something like RGIS to um, express that, uh, which is written texts and so forth, and our social sentiments about uh, racial geography, I think is stunning. And um, I really very much look forward to it. Um, I, I just wanted to um, add this question in, in which sort of has been addressed, but Zuleika Woods, um, I wanted to ask, uh, you know, what are some of the ways that emerging scholars on race and geography and in various disciplines um, raise awareness about uh, the ways that uh, new redlining or new ways of redlining or uh, obfuscation of what has been, how do we combat this? I don't know if combat is the word that you use, but that's, that's something that I feel like is resonant because I think mm -hmm. the notion of reparation is definitely I mean, it's a material exchange and it is a, a, a thing that yeah. you're doing to repent, right? So, so I'll say, I mean, um, in, you know, there's a couple aspects or a couple, uh, you know, points that I want to kind of ways that I want to respond. And one is that, um, you know, like this kind of collaborative work, it was a new thing for, for me. Um, one of, you know, there was people at four institutions um, who, kind of had the idea about like, what if we scanned all these maps? And it was just as simple as that. Like, what if we scanned all the maps? Like we see like one or two or six, we scanned them all um, and we put them on the web, would there be interest? And so the four people got together, one of whom was a friend from graduate school, another urban historian, but um, working collaboratively kind of brought with it several challenges, some just simply logistical. When can we meet? You know, like who's gonna get to the archives? Um, like who's gonna pony up the money for this? Like, how are we gonna parcel out little pieces so you can handle a piece, you can handle a piece and so forth. So there's challenges to that, but um, the kind of energy and the kind of like support and the different ideas, many of them, a couple of them for, for, for from dis different disciplines, the, 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 um, the kind of intellectual and human resources that they brought to it were like absolutely essential, right? And I, I can now, you know, it's like collaboration, that's a thing we should do, right? And, you know, I used to be able to say that somewhat tentatively, and now I could say, in, in full force because it's very rare, I think, and it would be impossible in this case for us to have had the impact um, and the kind of public attention and engagement if it had just been like one, one person kind of building this because each, each um, participant had teams and 
was engaged in the community and was working with other scholars. And so collaboration, I think, is one key thing because it's like building a web or a network. That's probably not, you know, like news to you all. It certainly was to a historian. Um, but I think also, um, you know, beyond that, kind of moving that um, idea of collaboration forward, giving resources to people was like really um, like also an unwitting stroke of genius, basically saying, all right, like they're not really our resources. We scanned them from the National Archives. Let's just make them downloadable to anybody. So for example, there's a climate scientist in Richmond and a um, environmental economist in um, Portland, Oregon, who worked together. They downloaded our stuff and they, they brought it together with some um, research that they had been doing to, to um, assess urban heat islands. And so there was a, they published a study illustrating that redlined neighborhoods are um, up to like 12 degrees hotter than green-lined neighborhoods within any individual um, city. And basically this is because in like the green line neighborhoods, um, there both were, there was more open space, there was more grass, there um, were more trees and like in the 1930s and there were more parks built subsequently over the course of the 20th century. There's better maintenance of trees um, and there's um, less impervious surfaces like parking lots and things of this nature. And so what this means is that um, in the context of, say, climate change, in a place like Richmond, when a green-lined neighborhood meet in the middle of summer, maybe 90 degrees, by no means like particularly comfortable, a hot 90 degrees in a green-lined neighborhood, like a red-lined neighborhood, maybe over 100 degrees, like basically unbearable. Um, and like I said, that has um, kind of resonance and consequences for um, like equity even now, but also like climate change, right? Like this year, 90 degrees versus 102 degrees, maybe next year or the year after days of like 95 versus 107. And um, like these can be like life or death, death issues now. So that like we would not have been able to think of this and would never have had the expertise to be able to do this, but just making these available to other like interested people and like potential collaborators is, um, is, is, is one aspect. And then I think also like maybe even most importantly, just being able to to kind of teach the public or illustrate to the public that we can and we must put a historical le like lens for equity you know on our cities on our communities and while we cannot say i never say like um redlining or redlining map like shows you in a deterministic fashion like what happened in any particular community but what i say it's like a, the rosetta stone it like helps translate or helps us understand these patterns of federal programs whether it started with racial covenants and then kind of federal hulk and fha redlining or whether it be um, urban renewal and slum clearance in the 1950s or whether it be interstate highways in the 1960s like there's layer after layer after layer that really helps us um, see multiple generations and um it can be hard to understand like what was there 
you know, like 80 years ago? Or what's the relevance of like this from 80 years ago to now? But these um, kind of historical resources help us, they give us a lens onto inequities in the past and, and help us understand the kind of circumstances we have today. So I hope that's um, a question by basically by giving members of the community like that, like they're going to run wild with resources like this and they have. Jun Long, I think we're about out of time. You know right, what? So I'm gonna... I just had one quick question, if you don't mm -hmm. mind. Yeah. And yeah, so um, Dr. Liddell, that was a wonderful, informative um, discussion that you gave. My question <laughs> pertains to universities and how universities historically have played a role in maintaining um, housing segregation within mm -hmm. Black communities, basically walling them off um, mm -hmm. from the rest of the community. Has your work uncovered instances such as those? Yeah, absolutely. So I'd say actually in two ways. One, um, the, the, you know, universities were often identified as kind of buffers between um, like Green Line residential communities and, and like neighborhoods that were seen as undesirable. So for example, there's, um, there was a document created, which is called the FHA Underwriting Manual. And these were some of these same people who were part of this collaboration and coalition in the 1920s and 1930s. It basically, basically delineated what are the standards by which the federal government will guarantee mortgages. And so in the underwriting manual, it said college campuses have, you know, they both are an amenity and they're often in very like pleasant areas and they're very stable. They're going to guarantee the future of a community and they can be, you know, because of their open spaces, often buffers between like high class residential neighborhoods and like redlined or redlinable um, residential neighborhoods. So in some ways they're identified as, as playing like a key spatial role in this process, even though that, so that was like the FHA that was delineating them as such, but like they they've have and continue to play this role in a number of communities. Um, I would say actually Clark Kerr, um, who is the University of California president in the 1950s and 1960s, he said the ideal place for a university campus is to be located between um, like a high class neighborhood and a slum. And he said, um, the high class neighborhood is where we'll have our research parks and the slum is where students will live and they need low class housing. Um, and the, as um, June kind of indicates, the University of Chicago um, is a classic case of this. And I actually studied this in my, in my book, Building the Ivory Tower. I was a little bit more interested in this later era of urban renewal. And I mean, like the University of Chicago has much to answer for in the 1960s and you know, today. But I mean, if, in fact, in some cases, what, university, what the University of Chicago did was not only did it write urban re, federal urban renewal legislation, what they would do is buy up houses in Hyde Park and in Woodlawn and then turn them into student housing. And um, in some cases, what they did was they, um, they would keep 
a, an apartment vacant during the summer, even when um, black applicants wanted to come in and rent it because they would say, do not rent this under any circumstances until the students come back because of this building or if this block or if this neighborhood becomes majority black, like we're not gonna be able to survive. Basically no white families would send their you know, kids to um, the University of Chicago you know, for, for college or undergrad. And so they managed by discrimination and this is quite explicit. Um, and, but then also I would say the University of Chicago on the South side was absolutely key and was absolutely explicit in its use of racially restrictive covenants. Um, they supported um, organizations which promoted racially restrictive covenants. And for the same reason, even before the era of urban renewal, they said, we demand, we need this neighborhood around the university to stay white because if the black belt, um, which is a set of neighborhoods that African-Americans lived in and were segregated um, into, um, if that expands into Hyde Park or eventually into Woodlawn, then they thought that the university would be endangered. Like they would, they would not have been. That and there, this, um, you know, the University of Chicago is like a great and wealthy institution, but they believed that they would be endangered, and so they took those actions to maintain those kind of color lines and to um, isolate themselves from the broader community, rather than like spending that same money on kind of community development projects or, you know, much more productive ways that would actually um, kind of like build community bonds. Um, I found, I would say actually one of the most compelling moments that I ever had as a researcher was when I found um, both a um, photo of uh, an undergraduate at the University of Chicago who was leading a sit-in of um, the president's office at the University of Chicago. And there was um, with, with the university chapter of the Congress on racial equality um, and their private real estate agent that handled these buildings that they owned in the communities. Um, and uh, the student's name was Bernard Sanders. And I was like, oh, that seems a little familiar and looked it up. And this is while he was still in the house. He was not even a Senator. And I realized that like, this is Bernie Sanders who, you know, that I looked up in his um, then kind of unknown um, political biography or autobiography, political memoir, when he said, yes, he had been participated in this. And I was like, well, this is amazing. Um, and he was a history student and he was like, you know, they did paired, paired applicant testing. And they said like, we've, we can demonst demonstrably illustrate that the University of Chicago is, is discriminating in its housing and, um, you know, led this sit-in. And at the same time, there was a person who became a very, a very famous historian named Kenneth Jackson, who sent a letter to the um, president of the university. He was a first year graduate student. And he said, no one supports these radicals. If you have to pursue moderate segregation in order to maintain the university, I support you. And I don't know anyone who supports the radical students. Ken Jackson, actually, um, he wrote the book Crabgrass Frontier, which is, he's the key urban historian to have brought these redlining maps to public consciousness. Um, and, um, you know, basically historians were on both sides of this debate as students at the University of Chicago. And, um, you know, in some ways it was a little bit disheartening to realize like, oh, like, his, 
you know, the study of history does not inherently give you like better or more equitable perspective on the past, but this could kind of illustrate um, the, you know, in some ways like the debate and the motivation of the University of Chicago in kind of maintaining that color line out, you know, and just outside their, their campus. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Winling. Um, mm -hmm. I'm going to go ahead and stop record. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you again. And I'm going to stop.